For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I'm just going to pray for us as we get into the word this morning. God, we just ask that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of your word, um, that you would embolden Kevin to uh, preach to us and proclaim to us what we need to be taught this morning. Help us find our greatest joy in the gospel and be reminded of that this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. It's a privilege to be here this morning. You can have a seat. I guess I should, should tell you that. First of all, it's, it's always encouraging to hear what God is doing among you guys here at Karis Jeff City. I always, every time I come here and I'm up front, I, I, although I don't think I've preached here before, but when I'm up front, I always try to say something that I think, what would Josh like to say, but he'd rather have me say it. So one thing I would encourage you, not that he's a coward, he's a very bold um, young man, but um, one thing I would tell you is summer is one of the most common times that new people visit a church, but it's also one of the most awkward times to visit a church. Okay, so people, when do they typically move? Well, they want to wait till the school year is over, right? You don't want to move in the middle of the year. That's harsh, hard on your kids, so you come during the summer, but then it's also the time where everybody's on the lake and going here or there, and so it's just really challenging, you know, especially when you're a really small church plant, so I would just encourage you guys, as much as you can, prioritize Sunday mornings, and just think that how valued you are, just even your presence, just greeting people, getting to know people that visit, um, it can make a huge difference when people come and seek out a new church, and, and many will this summer here in Jefferson City. Well, we are walking through the book of Ephesians, and I'm excited to get into this passage with you this morning. Um, the first question I want to start out with is, who wants to be a family like this? A family where you're not valued, where you feel like your weaknesses and your faults are magnified, where you feel like you're constantly torn down, where you're not loved, where you may feel like you're a reject to be cast away, or maybe just a problem to be fixed. Nobody wants a family like that. Nobody wants to be a part of a church family like that. At least, at least I don't. In Ephesians, as we walk through this book, and we've been here for a while, we see this breathtaking picture of the gospel, but we also see this picture of gospel community. It's what Josh was talking about just a second ago. The church isn't meant to be a worship service you come to. It's meant to be a gospel community, and what we see here in verses 15 through 16 is very different from that family I began talking about here. 
Here you see a people that are appreciated. You see a people that are valued, a people that are loved. And what you see here are two impulses that Paul has before God on behalf of this church. It's my desire in Columbia, here in Jefferson City, that we would increasingly be this kind of family. But before we get to those impulses, I want you to first look at the context, what comes around the verses that we're going to look at. Here, what comes right before Notice what Paul knows and hears, what he knows and hears. Verses 15 through 16, they come right after this long extended praise that God gives toward God for all the blessings of salvation. You see those words in verse 15, for this reason, basically therefore, for this reason. It points back to everything that came before, what is basically this extended song of Worship And Paul knows that these believers in Ephesus, they have received all these same blessings, and that just gives them great joy that they're with him in those blessings. But notice here also that Paul tells them that he can see the effects of grace in them right now. Verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So he says, I can see faith, I can see love. So he has here the two chief evidences of salvation. I see these in you. I see these in you. And there are two signs that show that all those blessings that he just talked about, that they're rooted, that they're growing in that Ephesian church. Paul sees this, or rather he hears of this. That's what he says. Now, Paul hadn't been in Ephesus for some time, and and scholars say that this was perhaps a a letter that was actually meant to be circulated to churches more widely than the Ephesian church. And Paul is going off excited about these people that he has not even met, right? And I think we can see ourselves doing that as well. Up in Columbia, you haven't met most of these families, but there's, there's two families that we're about to send to Japan, You could probably imagine hearing about what God is doing in and through him, hearing what the church is, what's happening in that church there about new believers coming to faith and believers growing and just getting overjoyed hearing that. Honestly, I'm up in Columbia most of the time. Some of you I haven't met, but I hear about things from from Josh, and it gives me and it gives the other pastors of Karis joy. I think we can understand that. But today, I want to focus less on faith that we hear about and get excited about and more on what's right in front of our eyes because it's around us. So Paul knows they've experienced all these blessings. He hears about how they've borne fruit in their lives and these two impulses spring up in him. They overflow from him. The first thing, he gives thanks to the Father for them. Verse 16, for this reason, or verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now this was common in Paul. I think it's something that was common in his everyday life. It comes out in his his letters in Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And and, and over in, in Philippians, Right at the beginning there, verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you over in Colossians. The same thing, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
This is just what Paul did. This is the types of things he said as he wrote his letters. But I don't know about you, but I don't think this is that normal. I don't think it comes that naturally for us. Here's what I think we tend toward. In our sin, complaining about our brothers and sisters. Tearing them down. That's what naturally comes from us. But think about it for a second. This isn't real complicated, but, but who else in Scripture is seen as doing that? Who's called the accuser in the scriptures? Well, that job is already taken, right? And we, we don't want to go the direction of Satan, right? We can't do this. We can't allow this type of behavior to seep into the local church or we become that unhealthy type of community I began talking about. What does the gospel do in us? Well, we give thanks for our brothers and sisters, just as Paul does here. We give thanks there's this assumption that Paul makes here, and it's this. Who we are is because of him. He's thanking God. He's, he's teaching us who we are is because of him. Who we are is because of God. He's the one that does the work. And so as we look around at life, but as we look around at each other, we should be deeply thankful people. It's how Paul lives. And as Paul thanks God... And he's uttering that to them. He's encouraging deeply these people, right? I thank God for you. I thank God for what he's doing in you. And he's doing this for these people even in their sin and weakness. I think a lot of times we can read the New Testament and we can have this, we can romanticize it. You know, we want to be a first century church. We want to get back to our roots. I mean, have you, have you read the Bible, right? Read the book of 1 Corinthians and all the craziness that was happening there. We don't see quite as much of that in Ephesians. But what Paul is teaching here is not just to teach them positive instruction here. He's trying to correct problems that they have as well. Paul is looking at them in their sin and in their weaknesses. And he's saying, I thank God for you. Now, not all of you are into football. But I think most of you here probably at least have heard of a guy by the name Peyton Manning. Right, Peyton Manning, he's a, he's a pretty well-known football player. A, um, a couple of weeks back was the NFL draft where the teams pick players from college. But back around 18, 20 years ago, there was a man by the name of Bill Polian who's a really well-known NFL executive. He worked for the Indianapolis Colts at that time. And he's up late at night watching film and stressing out. He's acting like I probably would. And he's watching this film, and he's starting to doubt himself. They have the number one pick in the draft, and he knew that's the best opportunity, but it's also the best opportunity to pick the wrong guy and look like a fool. So he's watching film. He's watching over and over again. He bursts into the offensive coach's room and said, hey, guys, I'm really, I don't know if we should draft this guy. I mean, every time he throws the ball over 60 yards, it flutters like a duck. He's got the ceiling of 60 yards. <laughs> And his offensive coordinator looked at him and said, well, I guess we'll throw 59 yards or less then. I think, I think they made the right choice. Often the way we live is, is if we have kind of these night vision goggles on where we look around and all we can see are things that are wrong, things that are scary. And then we end up feeling somehow compelled and justified to always share those things. Rather, what we should look for are evidences of God's grace. How is God at work? 
in us, around us? What is God doing? And how can we, can we express those things and through that be speaking along with the words of God? I don't think most of the time we see those things, right? And I think that we act like we don't even believe they're there. But this is what we also desperately need is to have those things pointed out. Listen to these words by Pastor C.J. Mahaney. Most people are more aware of the absence of God than the presence of God. Most people are more aware of the presence of sin than evidences of grace. What a privilege and joy it is in pastoral ministry, and I'd say all ministry, to turn one's attention to ways in which God is at work because so often people are unaware of God's work. In our fight with sin and in our wrestlings with suffering, we often can't see what God is doing and we just don't believe they're there and we need encouragement. We need to feel that God is at work. We need to feel in some way as if we're appreciated. There's a second impulse that we see coming from Paul here. Secondly, Paul prays to the Father for them. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He prays for them. This was normal for Paul as well, back in in Romans 1. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Philippians 1.9. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And he kind of goes on in a similar way to what we see here in Ephesians, over in Colossians in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And he goes on and on. Paul prays for the other believers. But interestingly, I think here in Ephesians, If you look over in chapter 6, in verse 18, Paul is instructing about the need to pray. You know, he's given these, these, um, he's given a weapon, he's giving all the the protective gear that we need to have as believers. And in verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So praying for one another. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Make, or I just read that. Verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he says, pray for one another, but he says, I desperately need your prayers as well, so please pray for me. This is what Paul was all about, but I don't think we tend toward this either. At worst, what we will do is talk about people and even give up on them. At best, we talk to them and we try to fix them. The former Satan loves gossip, and so when we do that, he's all over that. But the latter, whose job is it to fix people? It's the Lord's. Again, the the job is filled, right? So we can't make it a pattern of either of those behaviors all the time or we end up with a harsh, abusive, hurtful family. The gospel has to work in us. And if it does, we will more and more remember each other in our prayers. There's another assumption here. It's it's pretty obvious, like the first. Who we will become comes from him. Right? We, We thank God for who we are. 
we, we pray for who we can be. Who we will become comes from him, so therefore we should not just be thankful people, we should be deeply dependent people. Right? So as Paul thanks God, he, he erupts into prayer for them. He, he loves them as they are, like I talked about before, but he will not settle for letting them stay the way they are, so he prays. We will go to someone who's broken, we'll grab our best tools, we'll try to fix them, but we don't utilize what the scripture calls the primary tool. Because the first thing we should do is talk to God for them. Right? As they're facing problems, of course, but all the time, we should go before the Lord on behalf of our brothers and sisters. So much of the time, though, I don't think we, we think prayer works. We doubt that. We become cynical. And if we do believe it, we don't act like it. But this is our deepest need as human beings, as believers. Hear this quote from John Calvin from a long time ago. Our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden. We must lay upon God but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own that's just a beautiful picture of biblical community to make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them to make intercession to go before God on behalf of brothers and sisters life is so tough The mission that God has called us to is so hard. We have to love each other well. And the way that we love each other the best is through praying for one another. Right? So, thanking God, praying on behalf of one another. I want you to notice something else about the context. Hear what what follows. See here what Paul values, what Paul requests. Verses 17 through 23. Josh, are you preaching next week? Josh, Josh will go into this, or yeah, someone down here will go into this next section of what this all involves. But notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask for their circumstances to change. Right? He doesn't ask that their suffering would end. He doesn't ask for them to be healthy. He doesn't ask for them to be wealthy. You know, there's a heresy out there that says that. He doesn't want them to be fast, fat and sassy and have a private jet. Look what he wants, verse 17 again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, and he just goes on and on. What does he want here? He wants the gospel to more and more be rooted in their lives and grow. That's what he wants. Those are the priorities of Paul. Paul actually wants the best for them. I'm, I'm a dad. I have three little kids. I don't want just what my kids want all the time, although they don't understand it. I want what's best for them. I'm a fallen guy. I'm a sinner, so I get it wrong too. But 
I want what's best for them. Paul wants what's best for them. He wants them to know these blessings that they found. He wants them to just captivate them and bear fruit in them. Paul here, he can, he can see where God has brought them, but he also has a vision for their future. A few weeks ago, we had a big Decade of Grace celebration with Karis, and I talked one week about all God had done in the last 10 years, and then the, the next week I talked about our vision for the future, what we would ask God to do in the next 10 years. Paul has that for these people. He looks back and thanks God for what he's done in them, but he has this vision of who he wants them to become. And my question is, is first, do we have that kind of vision for each other, this hopeful vision of what the gospel can do in them, and do we have the right priorities? Do we want the best for our brothers and sisters? Now, for the rest of the time, I'm going to get increasingly practical as we go on. I want to give you three things now that we can put in practice. Here's the first one. Overwhelm your family with encouragement. I like the word overwhelm. You know, I think most of us feel overwhelmed by just the trials of life. Let's try to overwhelm each other with encouragement. A couple of weeks ago, I met my wife at this track event that the kids were wrapping up. I picked up my three kids. My wife went to the hangout for the, the women's retreat, and I was driving home down Providence in Columbia. My son, who, who's in middle school, had just run this, this mile race along with largely a bunch of elementary kids, and he t- gave me his time, and he just said, hey, Dad, that's, that's a pretty good time, right? That's a good time. And I looked at him, and what I said was, is I said, you know, that's, that's a pretty good time. You know, it wouldn't win any meets, but it was a good time. And instantly I saw his face get downcast, and the kids in the back kind of said a few things. And I kind of realized, you know, that was not the right thing to say. Now, of course, I was thinking, well, you're racing against fourth graders. You know, you lapped them for a reason. You, you've never been a track before. You know, imagine what you could do with track. But all he heard was is the time wasn't good enough. If you think about it, most of us in life get far more discouragement. I think we do in the workplace, in the home, you know, when our kids are talking smack. We get far more discouragement. And here's a rule that I've, I'm trying to follow. It's so hard, but try to practice 90% words of encouragement and 10% words of correction. 90-10, you know, we get, need to get our ratios flipped around. And with that, relentlessly search for evidences of grace in your home, in your church family, look for those, try to catch people doing something good, as I've heard some parenting teachers say. Catch people doing something that shows God's grace and thank them for that. Relentlessly overwhelm your family with encouragement. Here's the second thing. Embrace your primary work of prayer. Yes. Yes, there's a place for conversations. There's a place for counsel. Don't hear me not saying that. I will say, though, that I think, Karis, that we are better at that than prayer. Our main task is to pray for one another. And that's the hardest thing by far, but it's the most important thing. Oswald Chambers put it like this. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Do we believe that? And when we do pray, do we pray with biblical priorities? 
We have to put down our weapons, we have to put down our tools, and we need to just talk to God on behalf of each other. Especially if we're struggling with that other. Okay, if, if, if you have an issue with someone, we are always going to tell you, go to that person and talk to them. That's what we have to do. Our feelings don't immediately often just get fixed, right? If you're struggling with someone, pray for them. I guarantee that God will chip away on your hard heart and do a work in you. Pray for them. Now, those are the first two things. Before I go on, though, I want to give you a quick challenge to practice those first two points with a couple of groups that are pretty easily neglected. The first one, okay, the, this one sounds a little self-serving, so, so beware, but pray for your church leaders. Pray for Josh. You may not realize this, but, but leaders, deacons, elders, missional community leaders, they don't get as much encouragement as you, as you think. There's so many trials. So many trials. Some of you know some of the trials that Josh has experienced, but just so many trials. He needs your prayers. I need your prayers. Recently, I heard about this friend who's over in St. Louis who had been there about the same length of time that I had, leading this church. Great things were happening, and he was asked to resigned effective immediately and was was taken out of his position because of his sin we need your prayers absolutely we do a second group your household the people under your roof your spouse your kids maybe your roommate if that's your your situation because one thing i'm sure about the closer people are to you the closer people are to you the less likely you are to express encouragement to them and the more likely you are to give too much correction. I'll say that again. The closer you are to people, the less likely you are to give them enough encouragement and the more likely you are to give them too much correction. I mean, it's, it's obvious. You feel safe with these people. You feel like you can sin and stumble and say the wrong things. Right? You also feel like you, they know that you love them, you know that you appreciate you just assume it. We can end up giving 90% correction and 10% encouragement. So I would just plead with you, and this is hard, express that to people around you that you love and pray for them as well. Here's the third thing. Saturate yourself in the gospel of Jesus. Saturate yourself in the gospel of Jesus. Of Jesus. Our primary problem is this. We forget who we are. We don't realize what we have in each other. And we don't remember what we can all together become. Matthew 18 comes to mind. The parable of the unmerciful servant. And there you have this king who has forgiven this massive debt. We'll call it millions of dollars. This guy, or a man owes him a massive debt owes this king millions of dollars. He comes before the king, begs, pleads, forgive this debt, you know, let me out, um, let me out of prison. And he forgives him the debt. And then this man goes out and he finds a guy who will say, in modern terms, owes him a quarter, and he beats it out of him. Of course the king brings it back in, rebukes him, throws him back into prison. But Jesus' point in telling that story is, is the more we comprehend the gospel and what the Lord has done for us, 
the more likely we are to apply that to the people around us. The more grace we've experienced, the more grace we will extend. And so what we really need are to wear grace goggles. I know it's a funny image. Where we walk around and we, we see the things that God is doing in people and around us. But that's only going to come when our minds and hearts are, are saturated, when they're blown away by this gospel that we've received. The more and more we appreciate the gospel, the more we will appreciate others, and the more we will pray for those around us. So we have to be people that dive into the word of God. We've got to dive into the gospel. And if you want a place to start, just meditate on the verses that come right before and right after this passage that we're looking at this morning. You can meditate on that for years. Okay, those are three things to do. Overwhelm your family with encouragement. Embrace your primary work of prayer. Saturate yourself in the gospel of Jesus. But there are four words here that I'm leaving out that they kind of drive me crazy. You may not have noticed them. You may look at verse 16 and say, Paul says, I do not cease doing these things. I do not cease. You might say, I can't possibly do this. Not cease? I'm, I'm too busy? I'm, I'm too distracted? I doubt you're busier than Paul, right? Making tents, founding the church as we know it. He didn't have Facebook, right? That's true. But I'm sure he had plenty of distractions. But we can't just look at this and say, you know, it's just too much and just not try, right? We have to wrestle with those words. But think about it for a second. Paul, we're not Paul. Yeah, but Paul wasn't Jesus, right? So I have no doubt that Paul didn't struggle with this as well. I know he did. And doubtfully, this means that he was praying every single second. I don't don't think that's what it's saying. More than likely, he had disciplined himself to have regular times of prayer in which he was lifting up these believers in these churches. Now, no, no doubt as he matured, that these became more instinctual, they became impulses, but I don't think he started that way. A couple years ago, uh, no, several years ago, my wife woke up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. exactly, and her, her mind filled with concern for this couple in our church, Aaron and Maureen Harris, that are up in Columbia. She didn't know what to do. She didn't want to call them at 3 a.m., so she prayed for them. Well, it turned out that at that moment, Aaron had this pretty serious brain seizure when she was praying for him. There's more story to it, which is awesome, is that it was at that exact moment that the two girls who would eventually become their adopted daughters were removed from their abusive home. God used actually that seizure to move in them to, to consider adoption. But the point I'm making is at that moment, my wife's mind filled with them. She prayed for them. Now, that'll happen at times, And if someone comes to mind, we should pray for them. But I don't think that's usually the way God works. Most of the time, we're going to have to exercise some discipline and make it a point to pray for one another. What we need is just a good old prayer time where we've got the Bible open, we're hearing what God says to us, we're conversing with him, and along with it, it has a list of people for whom we can pray for people back when I was a new believer called it a quiet time that I don't like that too much a devotional time personal worship time whatever it would be we need that we need it what we need are to take 
some baby steps. You know, prayer, much like walking, becomes instinct, it becomes instinctual as we mature. I'm pretty clumsy, but I don't think about walking as much as I'm sure I did when I was a little kid. Right? The more we mature, the, the less we think about it, the, the more it becomes natural. It's the same way with prayer. But we have to take those baby steps and we have to begin to discipline ourselves. Okay, some more practical things. I forgot to get my phone out of my... I'm actually going to use my phone. Um, some practical things. First, on one hand, let's plan ahead a little bit in how we pray. Okay, how about we use technology against itself? Okay, it's, it seems like the enemy. How about we, we you, you know, do some judo on it and use it against itself? Now, grab your phone if you have one, especially if you have the City app installed. If you're new and you don't have the City app, um, it, it may not help as much. But normally on a Sunday, don't pull out your phone. Josh has been instructed to throw things at whoever pulls it out. But... We use this thing called the city in Chorus as a way to connect, communicate with one another. But if you pull that out and you open it and you look, you click on groups, which I don't think I have that step on there. You scroll down to the Chorus Jeff City Campus group. And at the top of that, you should have one that says membership role. If you click on that, you have a list of all the, the current members. And... We'll keep that updated. We'll keep it at the top of the group so that'll always be there. And then, remind me, pray for the family every day at 11 a.m. And there you go. I don't know if you knew you could do daily reminders, but it, it works. So every day you have that reminder or if you want to set it for a couple of times a day and then you pull up that list and, and pray for one or two people. It's, it's really that simple. That's a baby step that we can use. Here's something else, maybe something more old school. What about good old-fashioned thank you cards? Right, today when we get mail, it's 95% it's junk mail, but if it comes from someone that we actually know, it's kind of an exciting thing, and if you see someone has actually used their hand to write it, you know, that you knew that it must have taken hours to do that, and it's, it's kind of cool, right? What about taking that extra step, expending that extra effort, and writing Someone a thank you card and just trying to encourage them and say how thankful that you are to the Lord for them. You might even have Siri or whatever the Google dude's name is. You might have her remind you. That's what I do. Fridays, it, I have this reminder that pops up. It's helpful. Okay, so planning ahead. Let's second seize the moment. When we talk about prayer, here's one thing I would encourage you toward. Pray with people on the spot. Pray with people on the spot, okay? We had a, a girl that, that told me that she was at Aldi one day. She was out in the parking lot. She ran into one of her friends from church. Hey, how you doing? She kind of told her not so well, and they prayed right there in the parking lot. You know, I don't know if they almost got ran by a cart or not, or a, a car, but they prayed right there. Imagine if before and after the worship gathering here in Carus Jeff City, if there were groups of two and three praying for one another everywhere, it'd be a beautiful sight. Here's another thing about in the moment. Express encouragement at every opportunity. Look around for ways that God is working and express it when you see it. You might, you might say your, your gut instinct, I mean, I think a lot of Karas people would say this, is, well, people are going to get prideful, right? 
people are going to get proud. I doubt it. You know, again, I think the scales are pretty tipped um, to the, the side of discouragement. And I just say, let's worry about that when we get there. Even people on the band. Some people think, yeah, they're in the band, they're rock stars, you know. Everybody thinks they're awesome, you know. No, even the people in the band. Encourage people. Tell people that you see God working in them. Those are just some baby steps again. But taking those steps and beginning to, to form ourselves into disciplined people by his grace, through the Spirit, we can begin to overflow in these things naturally like we see here in Paul. But remember, we are going to fail, right? We're going to fail. I've been trying to argue this whole time that the gospel should drive us to do these things that we see here. But when we stumble, when we drop the ball, it should drive us back to the gospel. Because we cannot impress God with our obedience here. We cannot impress each other with what we do here. And he died for our disobedience. Not praying is a sin. I read a bunch of stuff this week. One theologian said it was the, the worst sin because you're acting like you're independent, like you don't need help. Not encouraging each other is a sin. Jesus died for those. He died to forgive us, to set us free from those, and by his spirit, he's remaking us into people who will encourage one another and pray for one another. Well, let me give you a picture of another kind of family, and hopefully you've been seeing it this morning, where people are valued, where people are affirmed, where grace is pointed out, where it's celebrated, where people are cared for in so many ways. Yeah, you, you receive meals whenever you're, you have your first baby. Yeah, you, people counsel you when you're really struggling, but in the chief way, people are prayed for, a place where people feel appreciated by the Lord and by each other. That, imagine if that were the culture. A culture, it's just the way we do things, where people are encouraged, where people are interceded for. Imagine that, because that's the type of family I want to be a part of, and I think by God's grace, God is doing something here in Karras and in Missouri in that. Okay, one, I want to give you one quick pitch for membership before we close. Not just membership here. If God would take you somewhere else, that's fine. If they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. But you're never going to hear me in my family or in Chorus. And if you ever hear me say this, you know, slap me, Josh. You're never going to hear me use the expression, what church do you go to? Or I go to so-and-so church. Because that just conveys this idea again that we show up for a service, which I hate that word too, and then we leave. No, it's meant to be a gospel community on mission. It's meant to be a, a family. You can go to a church, but it's not the same as being a part of one. Listen to Hebrews 3 with me, just two verses, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need that kind of family. We need a family that will encourage us. We need a family that will challenge us. We need people that will make us feel appreciated. We need people that will push us when we need to be pushed. They'll pull us when we need to be pulled. That will lift us up when we're down. We need people that 
we can count on, and those people need to know that, we're, that they can count on us. And so that's what membership does. We sign up, we covenant, we give our lives to one another, we commit to encourage and pray for one another. Let me pray as I close. Thank you, Lord, that you called us into that kind of family. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would continue to make Carus Jeff City a place where, where people experience the gospel and they don't just experience it from you which that's the most important thing but they they do experience it from you through each other lord um, make us a place where where people are encouraged where people are prayed for lord um just rewire us bring us to repentance so we can just see our priorities and see what we should be doing in response to the gospel and i pray you would just make us that type of family lord in christ's name amen